We're recording inside the Cohab Podcast Studio space under the Texas Street Bridge by the Red River in downtown Shreveport, Louisiana, and this is the 3180 Podcast. What is going on in the 318? What is our current identity? Shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be. It's time for Shreveport to make a 180. Every Thursday, we are having conversations about doing just that. We're talking to people who are making the difference in our city. I'm Josh Clayton. I'm Thomas Young. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Episode 5, Jason Brady. Jason is a local Shreveport native. He's a Bird High School graduate. He went to culinary school after he got a finance degree. Uh, Life brought him back to Shreveport where he helped open the Superior Steakhouse on Line Avenue. He eventually opened Wine Country Bistro and Bottle Shop. We talk everything food. We talk farm to table. We talk field to table. And we get into what Shreveport needs to make the 180. Welcome to Jason Brady. What's happening? How's it going? Living the dream in Shreveport. Living, living the Shreveport dream. Yep. So you dropped your son off at work today. I did. Tell uh, me about that. Kind of a proud moment uh, as a father trying to raise a responsible uh, uh, children. Uh, 15 years old. He's worked all summer, um, and it's good to see him with a smile when he gets a paycheck. Um, he's working a warehouse job for a friend of mine, but. Uh, building a little work ethic it's uh it's fun to see my first my first job was the ivan smith warehouse yeah i worked at ivan smith too yeah trey went one way and i went the other i know he went into the office where the air conditioning was and i went out to the trucks and loaded them with some guys who loved to be like well here we'll show you how this works and then i loaded the whole truck and they just laughed at me i loaded many 18 wheelers (laughs) with sofas and refrigerators and lazy boys while trey looked on from a window of air condition yeah well i think he's still doing that yeah <laughs> thanks yeah. Trey. well <laughs> what uh what's your your son's like 15 years old he's 15 um and he's, he's not just hanging out by the pool all summer long and chasing girls and doing what no he gets, boys he, do. he gets some uh downtime but uh we kind of require of him to build a little responsibility as he goes at some point he has to be a upstanding uh producer in this community or whatever community he lands in well, that's awesome. That's uh, that's real important. And he, he obviously doesn't have his own ride yet, so you had to drop him off, and you got to go pick him up later. And and uh, and meanwhile, he's earning a living. Part of parenting, but it's a it's a fun part of it. How many kids do you have? I have two boys. Really, a fifteen year old and a twelve year old. Uh, polar opposites, uh, but both just incredible in their own sense. So, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background for those who don't know you. Um, as we usually joke in here, our five listeners may or may not know who Jason Brady is. So where'd you go to school here in Shreveport, and what'd you do after you left? So I'm a um, public school kid from Shreveport, Louisiana, South Highlands and Bird High School. Um, graduated from uh, LSU in Baton Rouge, and just wasn't quite ready for the, the real world. So I, I kind of got out of the finance world, which was my degree, and went after culinary school. Um, I had enjoyed cooking as a, I guess, a, a means for spending money through college and enjoyed the, the restaurant world, the creativity of it, the, the fast-paced of it and all that. And so I decided to go to culinary school, uh, probably against my parents' wishes, uh, as it wasn't the most popular trade school or post-grad school available uh, for kids at that time or college grads. Um, and I went to Charleston, South Carolina, to Johnson and Wales, um, and and that's kind of where my career began. Um, through there, I've kind of worked all over the country, um, 
mostly in the fine dining um, sector under some great chefs. Um, I think I had a lot of lucky breaks through the way of just paths opening up for me that built a resume that was um, got me to where I was. Um, where's the where's your other than your own restaurants? What's the what's the best not the best restaurant but the most your favorite restaurant experience of, of that period of time? Uh, probably the number one was Charleston Grill. I was fortunate enough to get a position in a place that at the time was one of the top restaurants in the country. I think still is considered from a service standpoint and food standpoint, one of the um, kind of leaders in fine dining Southern cuisine. Um, I worked I worked under a chef there, Bob Wagner. Um, he is the only American chef to own a Michelin rated restaurant in France. That that stat may have changed recently, uh, but at the time it was a very rare feat for an American to walk into foreign grounds and prove themselves at a high level. So he really taught mostly French cuisine um, using Southern products and it, it really kind of shaped my culinary path just working under him. And, and so I would say that was my most formative education in a kitchen. Um, after that, um, I've kind of worked in New York. I've worked in uh, Florida. I've worked a little bit all over. Uh, from Shreveport, said I'd never come back as many people did at a certain time. Left <laughs> and said they'd never come back to Shreveport. And for an odd kind of sequence of events, I've landed back here. Married, got engaged, uh, started working, and the rest is history. What year did you move back? I moved back in 2004 or 2003. Was Wine Country your first venture here? Um, what kept me in Shreveport was I opened Superior Steakhouse with the Superior guys. That's right. Okay. They, uh, uh, they reached out to me while I was here for a short period of time, mm -hmm. interested in going in a different direction than their, at the time, Mexican uh, Superior Grill concepts. And worked with them for uh, a little over two years, which was a really great experience. Have some long-time friendships with those guys. Learned a lot from the business side of it. And was able to build a, a kitchen from the ground up, working with uh, professional groups out of Chicago. And traveled the world doing research on that. And uh, traveled the country uh, from a steakhouse concept. And, and, and it was the first opening of a concept for me. Um, and that's education on the job that you can't get any other way. Uh, so that was what brought me to stay in Shreveport. And after two years, I decided that it was time to go hang my own shingle. I've seen your picture on the wall back there, like uh, in the hallway, you know, behind the bar in Superior. They obviously are running out of photos yeah, right. if they I, keep I, me hanging on the wall. I, I, I knew you had something to do with that. And I didn't realize that you were all part of the, uh, you're part of the opening process of that. So, um, and then when you left there and hung a shingle, that was your um, that was your wine country. That was our first uh, retail store. We uh, we actually started wine country with a, a, a retail shop in Ashley Ridge, uh, which was a small bottle shop mm -hmm. based on we felt the necessity of this town. People wanted more options when buying wine other than what the grocery store and liquor stores offered at the time. And with the Superior Project, I had spent a lot of time building the wine list and helping. Um, before we brought a sommelier on, uh, learning about the wine trade. So it seemed kind of a, an easy opportunity to get into the, the business world and open up a shop. And we started it and it, at the time before internet wine sales, before uh, 
grocery stores had larger selections of wine, um, we had a great business going. And that kind of turned into the opportunity to get back in the restaurant side and open up Wine Country Bistro and Bottle Shop, which was a combo in its first iteration of a restaurant. So the, the Bottle Shop opened up in, in 06? Yes. My son was born in, oh, I, I might have messed this up. It opened up in 04, so I moved back in 02. Okay. Um, and, uh, and the steakhouse opened in 02, 03? 02. Okay. So 04, the bottle shop opens in, I mean, uh, 15 years since. I mean, the, Shreveport's a completely different market now. But I think a lot of different markets have changed, don't you think? The market's changed. That The, the business changed. The, the, the retail world has changed. Uh, I very much enjoyed being in the retail market at the time we were then. And I very much enjoy not being in the retail market in the world we live in today. Um, really in the wine world, the internet changed that game completely. Um, really opened up the market and the availability of higher end products to all consumers without having a brick and mortar store. Okay. So when when did the Piermont concept come into your head? Like, at what point did you decide you think you could make a, a, a restaurant uh, with the wine country concept, make a go of it in the Piermont Mall? Well, truth be told, I don't think I ever thought we could make a go at it. <laughs> I had a uh, partner that leaned heavily on my background as a chef and his desire to get into the bar and restaurant business, and a real estate agent desperately looking to fill a spot. And the combination of those two people ended up being more than I could deny. As I fought it for quite a while and said, this is a horrible idea. We don't need to do this. Everything's going great in the retail world. Um, and it was just an opportunity that was a perfect location. Um, it was actually put into a location that used to be a restaurant called Joey's. When I was in high school, it was my very first job ever in the restaurant business as a bartender. So it seemed somewhat poetic that I was going to open my first restaurant in the same space that I originally started to work. Um, and kind of the stars aligned, the price was right, the time was right, and it just seemed like the right location. And it all, it all worked out. It was a, it was a very fun project. We had some bumps along the way, life lessons through opening businesses, but overall success was Michael the first chef? Yes, my brother was a chef also, is a chef also, and at the time was living in France cooking. And as we were inking the deal, decided that it might be time for him to come back to reality and come back to um, Shreveport. And it just kind of coincided that as a business owner owning multiple locations, I couldn't be the full time chef. And he wanted to come on board, which was a great. Um, great opportunity for a start. Uh, we have since found that working side by side is not the greatest thing for uh, uh, brotherly relationships, and uh, it, it, we do not work together now. But yeah, I'm sure. That Therefore, makes, you get along. Now. We get along yeah, very right. well now. I'm sure it makes for an interesting <laughs> business relationship. I, I, you're probably not the first two brothers to make that determination. Yes. What uh, what was your favorite thing on on that first menu that Wine Country put out? Um, I think I would have to say the barbecued tuna. 
It was a dish we struggled with ever keeping on the menu because the consumers weren't necessarily open to the price of it. But for me, it was the true combination of what we have with the Gulf seafood, with a fresh top-of-line tuna, uh, oysters, and barbecue being southern and grits. It was it was just a, a, a true combination of everything we had and everything I believed in food. Unfortunately, we fought to bring in the greatest product possible, which put it at a price point that wasn't every day for the our average consumer. What was uh, the price point on that? At the time, I think we were selling it for $36, which was the highest item on the menu, uh, which was a pretty high price point at that time in the restaurant world for you know, a local neighborhood restaurant. Um, and people are willing to pay that for a steak, you know, in different places around town in the 30 to $40 range, right? But they just, it was a... Yeah, and one of the things that we've struggled with in the restaurant business in Shreveport is consumer education on quality of products. Um, I've, for better or worse, have always taken the stand of um, put the best product on the plate, support local. You know, when you, when you buy a tomato from Houghton, it's a hell of a lot better than a tomato that came from Mexico. Um, the Gulf is in our backyard, and when you buy fish from fishermen in the Gulf, you're getting a fresher product. You're supporting a local, somewhat regional local um, a business, and some of those come with a higher cost. I mean, it's just part of it. And at the time, we had to compete with educating people of why that tuna cost what it did. You know, and I think that was a hill that took us a while to get over. You know, we weren't, the tuna wasn't $36 because we were driving nicer cars or we wanted fancier things. It was because we were paying for a better product to come into the market. And educating the consumer takes time. So it was a difficult hill for us. But by and by, it was the best, one of the best menu items we ever, we ever served. How'd you do the oysters? It was a crispy fried oyster on top of a pan-seared uh, yellowfin tuna over creamy grits with a mustard barbecue sauce and a crispy southern ham. Oh, the ham was in the grits? It was in the sauce. It was in the sauce. Wow. See, I, I don't think I ever had that one. I think I, I moved back to town in 08, and, uh, and the menu had some stuff on it that a lot of people that I would talk to around town wouldn't touch. They had sweetbreads on the menu and um, a handful of other things. And I, I remember thinking the place was amazing. Well, we didn't really hold back. I think, um, you know, that's what we came into it. And I, I still, to this day, kind of live and die by the same mantra. Is if we're going to do it, let's do what we want to do and do it the right way and teach people to find the people that accept it and teach people why we're doing it. And once you find that consumer and they people understand what you're doing, it's a, it's a great thing. I'm not real big on compromising. You know, I mean, the, the restaurant business is very tough. Um, I can't imagine many people get in the restaurant business over other businesses because it's a fast way to fortune and fame. It's it's not. It's a lot of hard work. So I've just always gone on the mantra, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's let's feed the soul with what we want to do. Um, believe in what you do and educate the consumer on why you're doing it. Um, and our menus have always kind of shown that. Um, sweetbreads were a tough sell. Foie gras was a tough sell. Ironically, collard greens have been one of the most popular items we sold over the years at Wine Country, um, which I would have bet against 20 years ago when 
my grandmother tried to get me to eat collard greens. <sighs> I think if you braise them in enough bacon, fat, and brown sugar, you can uh, you can get away with serving them every day, right? There's he, tricks to the trade. Uh, yeah, and uh, the like apple cider vinegar helps out a little bit with the, the bitterness of those greens too, I think, right? That and uh, orange soda would be a secret. In oh, oh you're, you're giving away your secrets. You shouldn't do that. Um, so wine country opens up in what year? Oh, oh, six? Oh, six was oh, the, I mentioned the, the restaurant. Itself. The restaurant's uh, the fall of oh, six. Okay, and you had the bottle shop in the back. In the back, yes. Selling cheese out of the air and everything. So um, what do you wish you'd have known before you got into that business? I, before I opened that restaurant, I wish I'd have known that plumbing under the mall was faulty. <laughs> uh, that would have saved a whole lot of money. Um, is, that your respons- is that your responsibility all the way to the parking lot? Uh, come to find out it's no one else's true responsibility after many court okay. cases and uh, right. uh, years of... Uh, Attorney fees. Okay. All right. So <laughs> you asked. <laughs> yeah. What was the easiest part about? I mean, I know it's a really tough business to get involved in. What's the easiest part of uh, opening a restaurant and getting it going? Well, the, the the most fun part about opening a restaurant is building the concept, building the restaurant, practicing, playing with the menu, enjoying and dreaming about what you're about to do. Uh, reality sometimes sets in usually about a week after you've opened it with a kind of oh crap moment of. I don't know if I'm ever going to go home. Um, but for people, for myself, I can speak for myself, the, the passion of dreaming up the next dish, dreaming up the setup, um, watching that dream kind of come together is the most fulfilling part of it. Um, you know, it does get tough, the day-to-day grind, um, the managing of the business side of it, the managing of the labor force, those are much tougher realities that during the conceptual time you forget about. Um, I've done it multiple times, and you wake up a day after you open going, oh, crap, I forgot about this part of it. Um, so, I mean, the, the most fun is the building it and, yeah. and, and the dreaming and the what else can we do type part of it. Yeah, I mean, from the outside looking in, it's a really sexy business in bars and restaurants, but... I think the the older I get, the more I realize how much of a grind it really is. I mean, it's a tough, tough business. And even if you're in a fantastic market, it's not easy. There's nothing easy about the bar and restaurant business. No, I mean at the baseline of it, you're you're serving a product to people when they are off work. You're serving a product to people when they're celebrating or holidays or gathering as a family. And in order to do that, you're not with your family. You're not off work, and you're not celebrating at certain times. So just at the basis of where your your, your your busy times are makes it challenging for normal, what most people consider normal day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, but it's fulfilling. I mean, I can't, I mean, I've been in it and still in it. And you still, and, in, and still and like it. And still right. like it. There's, there's, there's trade-offs in it, but, um, you know, it's... Well, for an example, for our listeners, you mentioned the education, which I'm sure has come a long way in 15 years in Shreveport. But, um, like, what can you get a pound of fresh tuna for off the off the back of a, you know, a commercial food truck versus from a from a fisherman from from the Gulf? Like, what's the price point difference in a pound of fresh tuna? I mean, the 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 end cost um, when that tuna comes in the door and hits the, you know, 
is ready to hit the plate, you're somewhere probably around $25 a pound. Yeah. You know, when you when you break that down to an 8-ounce piece, you're yeah. you're 12-something for just a piece of tuna. Yeah. And then you add everything else that goes into it. You know, for our business, I mean, the maximum to be successful in our business, your food cost can be is somewhere around 32 to 33%. Yeah. You know, you have to stay below that in order to succeed with all the other fixed cost and moving cost, labor cost and prime cost you have. Uh, so it adds up quickly. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, I've always said, especially in the business we're in, you know, people compare us from a price to price, you know, so-and-so sells something for $20 and you right. sell it for 35 And, you know, many times I said, I, I wish I could kill my soul and sell something for 20 because they're making more money at $20 selling something that was frozen two years ago that came from whatever yeah. country that they bought it from, you know, is a cheaper market. I just, we, I just don't believe in that. I believe in trying to educate the consumer. Um, I, I think one of the great things, I don't know if y'all have heard about it, but the state's passing um, a law where restaurants have to say where your seafood comes from. I think it might be shrimp specific right now, and it's basically an industry saving mm-hmm. thing to support the local the Gulf shrimping community, but I mean, that's a very big deal. People, the consumers don't necessarily see the difference between a $12 shrimp po' boy and a $6 shrimp po' boy. Do they care? I think they should. I think if yeah. they understood Why? the, well, I mean, <laughs> we health reasons to Wait. start. And, I mean, if you do the research on where shrimp from Vietnam is farmed, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't ever eat it again. I mean, there's no regulations. There's no, you know, I, I, I hear people fight about farming practices down the street, but aren't worried about the chicken that gets processed overseas. I mean, it's, there's some really gross stuff that goes in the, the some of the food production, especially mass food production in this, in this world today. Um, and there's people out there, all they're trying to do is bypass whatever regulation they can to get a cheaper product to make a larger margin at the top end for themselves. And it's the consumer that has taken the hit on that. Yeah. And you and I talked about this before and you've conducted an experiment with somebody about you buy different chickens and cook them the exact same way. Do you remember talking to me? about? I think the conversation was uh, based uh, on a French chicken uh, called a Bressy chicken. Um, it is a specialized chicken that people that go to France go after. Very, very expensive to buy. It's a blue-footed chicken um, versus an organic, or, or I, I think organic was the one we used, um, a grocery store organic chicken. Mm-hmm. And then what would be considered just a, a commercial frozen chicken, that you, right, right. You, you, the cheapest chicken you yeah. can get at the grocery store. So we, we reproduced the raising of a bressy chicken uh, down to the slaughter of the chicken fresh and cooked it side by side with a commercial chicken and an organic chicken. And um, as I will argue many ways of which is the best product to buy for the consumers, I lost this one. Um, is that right? Yeah, the bressy chicken was not worth all the hype. Um, I will say that the, the organic chicken was... Uh, a hell of a lot better than the, yeah, the commercial grade exactly. chicken. Yeah. Uh, but my my kind of love with French cuisine and the style of what they did it, 
I could not tell the difference between the hours of labor we had in raising and feeding this chicken to the perfect time versus the one I got at the grocery store that was organic. Um, now the commercial chicken didn't stand a chance. It just, I mean, it's done the cheapest possible but, but, but that's to the point of the education. I mean, I'm sure that with the, the, the Bressy chicken of, of France, a lot of that's a romance with tradition, but well, what you're really going for here is a, a, a pasture-raised chicken that was able to walk around and do his own thing rather than one that was cooped up in a, in a pen for his entire life and then killed and frozen, right? Oh, correct. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, these the, there's some incredible farmers locally that are producing great products. Uh, there's great products you can buy uh, that cost a little more, um, but you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. When you go in and try to get the cheapest chicken in the grocery store, the product you're getting is not as good as the other alternatives out there. You know, I, I've saw, I've seen that the most with uh, like a pork chop. I mean, I've seen it with every, you know, especially, you know, fresh fish versus frozen fish and whatnot. But the, I, I bought a, a farm, uh, a, a pastured pork, pork chop from one of the local farms. And this is a few years ago. It was a bone in and I, it ate like a steak compared to the, the pale white meat pork chops that you're used to getting from the grocery store. I mean, the thing was so much more flavorful. And then probably three times the cost, but at the same, but you, but you realize what a pig tastes like when it gets to do its own thing. Well, I, I think the, con, the 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 end consumer, the average consumer, doesn't might not care and doesn't know what food has gone through in the past forty years. I mean, I use the example of a strawberry. If you go out to Oregon and you have a fresh strawberry, it's the size of your pinky nail. It's tiny, but it has the flavor of four thousand strawberries in one. But it will, it will only last about 14 hours off the plant. Well, that's very hard to sell it across the country. So over 40 years, they have modified that plant and that fruit in order to sit at room temperature in a grocery store for two weeks, 10,000 miles away. And that's just one example. The pork chop has been genetically modified over generations to be shelf-stable, uh, grow to maturity faster, and less expense on the farmer's side. Well, there's, there's a cost to that, and that cost is quality and taste. And pork is one of the easiest ones to show off to people because a pork chop that you get from one of our local farmers that has been raised out to its full maturity is a usually a heritage breed or some sort of a cross that makes the best, most flavor meat, it doesn't even look the same as what you get at the grocery store. It's, it's a, a different color. It's a different color. It, You know, I say the, the genetic modification has washed the color out of pork. And one of the greatest ad campaigns that in our face tells us <laughs> we have screwed up the world is pork, the other white meat. Well, pork getting white, you know. I now mean, it is. Now it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I think that's, a disheartening thing for me is in the culinary profession to see those changes and I'm I'm the very opposite of it you know you mentioned seafood you know the practice of Japan when you order fish in many Japanese restaurants the fish is swimming in the back of the house you know so when you eat it the texture is so much different a fish that was caught harvested and cooked from the time you ordered it versus fish that was frozen three months ago and shipped across the ocean 
I mean, they're two totally different products. And, you know, it, it might go on deaf ears on many consumers, but I've just always focused at trying to teach and build a consumer base for those that care. But this is like, uh, this is a food place. People, I mean, this town is a, people eat food here, a lot of it. No, I, I, I agree. And I, I think the more you, I think through all that, everyone needs to know what they're eating. I mean, my biggest argument is I don't, just just ask questions. Ask where your food comes from. Ask, you should know. I mean, responsibility raising kids. I mean, kids need to know what they're eating or why they're, you know, where their product came from. You know, I, I, I fight it with two kids right now that you need to eat vegetables. You need to less processed food. Uh, I try to educate anyone and everyone that will listen. I mean, it's, it's for our own health. I mean, it's for longevity. I mean, it's everything. What you're putting in your body, it's important to know where that comes from. And that probably falls on deaf ears for, it it is a food town. It's a food state, but it's not necessarily a a state that cares about the health and nutrient value. It may be uh, more of a quantity than a quality in some, you know, I have heard an argument uh, recently I heard uh, someone arguing, uh, well, I went to, I think they had gone to Bergeron's or something, and they had they had ordered the boudin balls at that establishment, and they were like, well, they just weren't big enough. Like, they tasted pretty good, but the ones that, I don't know what the other place he was naming, but he was like, the, those are so much bigger, and these were... At, you know, X, these were $4 and those are only $3 and they're bigger. But I think this is your point. The yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I, my industry is wide and diverse and I can only speak in part on the segment that I'm in. And if what you're going for is the all you can eat buffet, I'm not your guy. I'm never going to be the guy. If what you feel is value is the pastas falling off the side of the plate or the old 76er steak i'm not your guy and i'm not knocking those places they're very successful they there's a great i mean there's an italian place in bozier i assume that's still open that in high school when i didn't have a extra penny we love to go eat as much spaghetti as i could eat for i think it was like 4.99 or five dollars and you know it it's not for me now, but it's for, there's people that it's set up for. And that's just not the segment I'm in. Have you heard, have you heard the, the Chris, Chris Jay's did a stuff that busted where they went to a, a Chinese buffet and they did it like a tasting menu. Like they, they got <laughs> their plates and they had a seven course meal. And it was like, they talked about uh, how, you know, well, let's, this is the first course. So we're going to have soup. And then they had some bites of soup and then they, it was like, took them, I don't know, maybe several hours. Anyway, it's a uh, check it out. It's pretty entertaining to to listen to them talk about like, wait a minute, if you don't just pile everything together and like mash it up, it's a whole different experience. Yeah, but, but, I, I have but it's a fear. All of, you can eat though. I mean, well, but that's, that's, that's not the point. The, the point is not the, a tasting menu, right? But the point <laughs> though that was their point was you can make your own tasting menu for like eleven dollars. <laughs> That was the point. I have and this Gulf shrimp. I have a fear of heights, 
yeah. really modern roller coasters and mm-hmm. buffets. That's <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm not going to eat at buffet. You're not going to take me to the very top of some sky tower and drop me really quickly. And you're not going to find me. What if they put a buffet up there? That's a Chris J territory up <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, they, they can have it. <laughs> So we we can't see a buffet concept coming from the Brady Restaurant Group anytime soon. No, I, I I don't even know how to do it. It's it's it's. Where would you put it if we if we forced you into this? <laughs> uh, I, I it was like what, what, here here's the deal. You have to. This is the first part of a three part process. You have to have a buffet restaurant. It's got to be open six days a week. Where we would put it? put it near the unemployment office because I would be heading there very quickly because <laughs> I would fail miserably at trying to do it. it even if you had bressy chicken on the buffet, you that might help me fail faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So we'll we'll get back to the uh, we'll get back to the buffet idea towards the end because we 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 brought you in here today to actually talk to you about opening a buffet that Thomas and I are interested in starting, but you don't seem to be receptive. I will, uh, I will help consult on that. Project. <laughs> all right. So what, what was, all right. One thing that I'll notice, uh, that I did notice at wine country that I'll bring up is when I started, when I came back to town, I did oil and gas for a little bit and I, um, and I was in there all the time and I didn't understand why it wasn't crowded. Like it, to me, it was the best restaurant in town. Um, and I mean, a lot again has happened in the last 11 years in Treeport. I think a town is way better than it was then, but that, that was the place, and it, I would go there on a Thursday night, and the town that I just moved from, a, a place like Wine Country with that open bar seating concept, with the menu, the real creative menu, with the small plates where you could, you know, get a couple of different things, mix and match, that would have been a really hot spot for anybody between 25 and 35. That would have been the spot. So in 08 and 09, I didn't see... I didn't see the crowd. And then by like maybe 2011 or 2012, especially on like Wednesday and Thursday nights, um, that it really did become a, a much more crowded establishment. Do, do you recall that or did the numbers not reflect that? Well, I mean, we always had, I mean, I can't remember a time when it was always consistently packed at any concept we've ever had in this market. And I think you, you kind of compared it to a bigger market in that question. Okay. And I think... You know, I remember a lot of commentary I used to get was, you know, I, I love coming to wine country, but it's just too crowded on the weekends or on certain nights. And, you know, that was that's still kind of a mentality in this market where people find tend to find their going places or places that aren't crowded <clears throat> in in bigger markets. Most places stay crowded the successful markets because you have the right number of establishments to the right number of people. And what we have in our market and we've, I mean, restaurant owners, we talk about it. it it's trade-offs. You know, so-and-so is busy on Tuesday night. You mentioned Wednesday night. That was our night. You know, so-and-so down the street might have a Tuesday night because we just, we're a smaller market. And it's when people used to say it's too crowded it, it always bothered me. It, it just always bothered me because I find when I walk in and I see a place that's crowded, I'm excited. I like the buzz. I'm excited for the business. I'm excited for everything around. And when I walk in a place that's not, you know, the struggles they're going through. And in our market, I don't, 
there's not a lot of places that are lines out the door. No, there's you don't you, have to wait anywhere. You don't have to wait you, anywhere. And, and, and people I think, like get offended when they walk in and there's a ten minute wait at a place that they're a regular. And I mean that I mean that's par for the course in most places. Well, I think that's a a, a measure of the strength of our businesses, and that's not a good measure. You know, I, when you when you see crowds, it's healthy, and we don't always have that. Now, I've, we've been on the fortunate side of crowds more than not and i'm glad to be on that side but it's it is tough in this market being a smaller market well what did i don't know if the numbers reflected it you you can speak more to that but did it gain popularity over a period of time that 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 you can attribute to a certain thing that wine country did was it a a menu change to make it a little less creative was it a, a marketing push what because I saw the crowd increase over a handful of years to where it became a regular spot. I think it's just more people, you know, you, you touch more people. I mean, I think as, as you, if you start something that's new, that people aren't used to, it takes time for people to understand what you're doing. And it kind of, either education, it's consumers getting used to the way you're doing it. Um, I mean, we kind of, we kind of broke the mold. We walked in and we said, we're going to have tall tables in a loud bar and we're going to serve really fine food and we're going to take the tablecloths away. We're going to have a retail store where people are walking through the middle of this with bottles of booze. Um, it's going to be loud and we're fine with that. Yeah, and you can, and, and you can wear jeans in there. You can oh, wear with shorts in yeah, there. It's, and, it's, yeah. you know, our concept was... To make it, we didn't want to compromise on the quality or creativity of the food, just as you would in any upper-end restaurant. We, we wanted it to be a place that you could walk into in a tuxedo if you had a party to go to, or you could walk out of the, the, the blue-collar workforce and come in and have enjoy the same meal. Yeah. You know, I've, I learned over time, I worked in... Five star, five diamond, Michelin style establishments, and I think that's great. I love the food aspect of it, the service side of that. I respect, but it doesn't mean much to me. It's yeah. just not my comfort zone. I found uh, in some of my wild game and hunting, catering, and stuff that I've done, you know, sitting around a campfire and serving caviar and having the finest wine in the world was the greatest feeling to me. Like it was a very casual comfortable communal type feel and that's what we wanted to build when we built wine country and it was it was a a a warm feel with great food and loud and boisterous and you never knew what you were going to see and and i think that kind of shook what was the norm for fine dining at that time we were going through a time where you saw less people wearing jackets to work which is still we're kind of in a generational argument over which way to go, but the trend is going to much more casual. I think we are a little ahead of Shreveport and what now is the moving trend. Everyone wants great food or a lot of people want great food in a much more casual atmosphere. I mean, in the workplace, casual's more common. You know, I see, I laugh, you go into Rhino or a coffee shop in the morning and you see less suits than you would have a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because the world's becoming more 
casual and comfortable in day-to-day life. Yeah. And I think that's, when we, we did it, it was different. And it took some time, but I think it gained popularity really quick. Well, we, we just, you know, we're just in Rhino, and there was, what, uh, 10 people in there working? Like, yeah, maybe that, a few more, yeah. And that's the downtown. I'm sure the, you know, Piermont one is equally, if not more, people in there. It's hard um, to find a seat on the, especially in the summertime, it's hard to find a seat. Yeah, I mean, that, because a lot of people go to school, they come back, and then that's where they, you know, they get up there at probably their parents' house, and it's like, well, I'll go to the coffee shop, which is logically where you go, you know, just a younger generation goes there. But like, I remember 2010, I came here to work on a movie, um, and I got here, you know, and of course I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll send people to uh, the, the, you know, to the restaurant. And I went to tell the people, oh, you know, this restaurant is the place. And they, oh, yeah, we know we've we've been there every day this week. It's the only restaurant we go to. And it's I think because at the time those other ones did feel for, formal to a, a group of people that's used to, uh, you know, moving around the place and doing work on a, on a, hey, we got to find a, we're here. We're going to be here for four months. Where are we going to eat? And that was. Well, and I, I think the movie business, I you know, to Josh's question, I, I guess that was about the time the movie business hit Shreveport full force. And um, I'm not sure if it was the cuisine, the setting or what, but we were popular in that, in, in, in that segment of business. And we did a lot and, you know, we had, I think we were comfortable for the, I guess the big names in the movie business. I don't know the proper way to, they were well, all people to me and considered customers, but they were comfortable. And I think it, it, we gained popularity because we were popular with the movie folks at some point. And we did see an increase during that, period of time and well that was sort of to the point of your of, of being you know a little bit on the on the front end of of maybe a little bit too early for something but to, you know to the same point about rhino being i mean i remember right before that coming here to when i came here for that movie i don't think rhino was open yet if at all and the only place to get coffee was this like if you said to somebody, where do you get coffee? They said, at home. I make coffee at home. Okay, there's no place to go where you can just like read the paper and drink some coffee. They're like, yes, in your house, you can do that. It's like, right, I understand. But there's no coffee. You can go to Strawn's. I don't think we had a Starbucks at that time. There, there was a Starbucks. That's, that, that, there was a Starbucks that was in the Barnes & Noble. That's like, like yes, a counter. I remember that. It was, it was a like counter a, in Barnes & Noble. And there's still one in there. I went in there maybe uh, a week ago. And and when you buy something, they give you, like, here's your seven-foot receipt. If you clip the bottom off, you get a free coffee if you spend $13 at the Starbucks. But it's that was the first Starbucks. And I remember going to the Barnes & Noble to buy a cup of coffee because I just wanted a cup of coffee that was, you know, just a base level. And I was staying at my mom's house and she doesn't drink coffee. So it's like, where am I going to go? And literally I would talk to, you know, Ginger or somebody would say, go to Strawn's, you know, they have coffee. And it's like, Oh my God. You said that because we had a lounge seating area in wine country and 
we had so many people tell us that we needed to open up in the morning because we had the perfect setup for a coffee shop. And it, some part of me was thankful when Starbucks opened up because I was, didn't have to hear it anymore because <laughs> the thought of opening up in the morning seemed like a nightmare to me. Yeah. After you worked t- till <laughs> 2 a.m.? Till 2 a.m., correct. Yeah, I, I, th- I feel like that. But again, that's like part of you had gone somewhere, you had brought something back, you started, you know, working with the superior group. And then as you moved on, you, you kind of went in a different direction and then it got pulled back again. You're, you're, you just continue to be pulled back. But the thing that you really like is uh, farm to table style stuff, but also like you like to hunt, you like to fish, like, and if you're going to go hunt something or catch something, you that's that's kind of, right, and that's that's the thing that you seem like. That's my baseline. I mean, that's where I fell in love with this whole concept. I mean, I, I I'm a finance and accounting major, and ended up in the restaurant business. But it goes back to memories as a childhood. I mean, I remember in Munro, Louisiana, on Bayou Desert, catching a brim that probably was the size of a silver dollar, and my grandmother frying it in a cast iron skillet, and I just thought. It was the coolest thing I had ever been a part of, um, to then growing a tomato. I mean, and slicing that tomato, and 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 ha- having be part of the whole process. And I'm an avid outdoors fishing and hunting, and and I and I believe in it, and knowing where the product comes from. And I think if in a pipe dream for me is if everyone believed the same way. I just feel it would be just such a greater place and stronger community um, by commerce, by everything, by health. I mean, just the whole system would work better. Do you listen to um, Poppy Tooker's Louisiana Eats? Oh, yeah. And I know Poppy. She's a, a, a incredible voice. Um, she, she did a piece, and this was maybe a year or so ago. And there's a, a collective of South Louisiana restaurants, I think predominantly in New Orleans, that allow you to bring in your catch and they will cook it for you. And I mean, I think this is high end. This isn't like backwoods places. This is some high end places that, that I don't know what legislation passed or city ordinance passed, but if you're on a boat in the Gulf and it's noon and you've got a boat full of fish, you and four of your buddies are all out on a trip. You can call the, one of these selected restaurants, say, Hey, we've got, uh, you know, We've got some tuna. Uh, we got uh, mahi. You know, we, can we bring some of this in? And if you call them early enough, they say, yeah, if you have it to our restaurant by 3 p.m., we can do you guys at dinner by 7. Have you heard about this? I, I, I'm not as familiar within New Orleans or in South Louisiana, but I know this is very common. I mean, I'm, I'll be in Grayton Beach next Monday fishing, and there's restaurants right there in Grayton and around that area that will cook your fish for you your catch as you bring it in and the, the, the captains will refer you to the right place to do it. And, and, and can, and can you drop it. it off and they will event, like say, come back at eight o'clock and we'll have a whole dish put up. Prepared I, I can't you. answer that. I've, yeah. uh, I prefer to go home and cook it myself. Well, you're, so I've never you're been also the, a the process. So <laughs> I don't know how the, the end game works. Um, I can say I've with my history and expertise in wild game, I've, I do a lot of, wild game cooking for people, um, people that hunt and bring on 
duck, venison, whatever, and we've, through our catering, have gone out and prepared their product and basically taken our techniques to what they are, they just don't have the skill set or know-how to What about to like prepare. a bison? You ever cook like a... Ironically, you said that. I had a, this is true story, you just said this. Last night, my 12-year-old had his first bison tongue sandwich for dinner. Um, I cooked some local bison tongue uh, that I have been experimenting with, and we had tongue sandwiches last night, and they were phenomenal. How did that go over with Beth? Uh, my wife had a bowl of cereal. How'd you how'd you prepare how'd you prepare the tongue? Like, so we're doing tongue it a, tartare. So we're doing it a couple different ways, but basically it's a French technique. You 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 take the tongue and you boil it, um, and and white wine and aromatics, carrots and shallots and peppercorns and everything, and boil it for a long period of time. It becomes tender. Uh, this is the where the squeamish might want to get off the air. Then you peel the tongue because the taste buds are not very attractive. Uh, and then you slice it, and then you sear it in a French pan with butter, and it basically comes out to the, the taste and consistency of really good roast beef. Um, How long do you have to boil it to get to that level of texture? So we simmered it for about four hours, um, oh, wow. and it just it 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 basically um, becomes very very tender. And then when you sear it, it gives a the caramelization, and it's just phenomenal. We're taking some of it that we boiled, and now we're pickling it. Um, you know, I mean, tongue's a very popular meat that was used. It's really popular in Jewish cooking um, historically. Uh, you'll see it at delis and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a, used to be an inexpensive byproduct that people could turn in and and cook for cheap. It has since become a little more expensive as chefs around the world have are searching for cheaper products to cook to bring their menu prices down uh, and gain some popularity with the. I guess the kind of nose to tail eating where you don't waste any part of the the animal, but it's a it's 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 phenomenal muscle. I mean, you gotta. I'm not squeamish about eating anything. Yeah. No, you know, it, I mean, if yeah. you eat a steak, you're eating muscle. Yeah. I mean, I've, I accepted that a long time ago, uh, so it doesn't really bother me. Um, Could but you... it is kind of fun to pull it out of the pot and it. Doesn't look like anything other than a tongue. So if you if you tried to mass produce some, no, I shouldn't say mass produce, but if you put that menu item at a restaurant, I mean, what would you? Parish Taco has tongue tacos. Tongue tacos. How's that go? You you sous vide these things for ten hours and then take them out. Basically, you could sous vide, but you know, I mean, it, it's so Parish Taco will probably have a tongue taco, um, and you won't have to rush down to get it because it won't run out. Right. Um, put it on a buffet. It's yeah, it can go on your buffet. <laughs> Uh, it's funny, tongue Tongue was a very popular item. I mean, in, in restaurants I've cooked in outside of this market, uh, we had center-of-the-plate entrees with uh, uh, beef tongue. I don't see it. It has not ever worked very well in the Shreveport market. Um, what works the best? Uh, as recently closing wine country, I can say this because I don't think I ever have to cook it again, is trout almadine. And I'm glad to say that I have served enough trout almadine for the rest of my life. Um, You've hit your quota? Yeah, I've hit my quota. Um, and I don't need to do it again. Um, I, I don't want to sound down. I mean, I, I think Shreveport is... is yeah, what, what's your problem with trout almadine? I mean... I've just cooked too much of it, <laughs> you know. I, I'm... I think one of the issues that I always had with, especially through wine country, is 
sometimes this market doesn't like change. And for me, I've, I guess my perfect dream restaurant was one that the menu changed every month. And when I say change, changed in its entirety. Um, I mean, I basically got hate texts when I took shrimp tacos off I, the menu. I was going to bring that up. It was uh, it? Wine country and uh, may have lost a friendship or two over it. But um, it was hard to stay cutting edge and creative while balancing the customer's wants of comfort knowing they're going to have the same food. Um, Trout Almadine for us was a price point. I think it hit a right price point that people were more comfortable with. Uh, they knew what they were getting every time. Um, my personal taste is it's fairly plain. Um, it just doesn't excite me as much. And I, I'm also biased that I, we cooked a ton of it. Um, I like, I like seasonal change. I like constant evolution of food. I like seeing the personality of the, the staff in the food that you're cooking. Um, in our market, people like comfort knowing they're going to have the same thing every time. I think they like consistency too. Consistency. I mean, it's, it's the same. And, and that's not, you know, I'm not, we're not tanking on Shreveport, as Randolph says, but I mean, I think you have to honor your market. And if you're going to oh, no, I'm not tanking on it. I'm not by, yeah. I'm by any means tanking on it because, I mean, I, what I, there's restaurants, I won't mention names, but there's restaurants that are very popular in this market that you can walk in today and I feel like I see the ghost of those before me eating the same food that I ate 20-something years ago in the restaurant and there's comfort to that there's nostalgic there's it's all about it and and for me i think that's great i'm not i'm not knocking it but i like my personal desires are always doing something new and i mean even at parish taco now we're kind of getting stuck as we're i have a menu meeting today uh we're constantly trying to change but we know there's certain things on that menu that we can't change like if i took the uh the Korean, the, the Korean taco off, I mean, people would get mad. The Nashville hot, which to me was, when we started, was kind of a joke. Like, Nashville hot was a big trend in the culinary world. You saw it all on all food blogs. Everything, everyone was talking Nashville hot. And I said, we'll put it in a taco. Could you just have a, a special item at Paris Taco that's whatever the food trend is? Well, we're kinda, like, you, but, but you'll see it. It's like the food trend from Netflix or, or some kind of food TV. Like just whatever that is, just make it a taco. Like a ramen taco at this point, <laughs> yeah. with a, with a soft with a forty six degree egg or whatever the temperature of the egg. Just speaking of ramen, if you make it to Dallas, you need to go eat at Ten Ramen. Yes, is that the one in Deep Ellum? Uh, it's it's there's, right over the bridge to nowhere. I, I don't know the area. I mean, it's a standard. There's no seats in it. You oh. eat at the counter. Wait, oh, uh, that, all right, that one's next door to uh, the ta- Taco Deli. Yes. And it's right across the street from the Belmont Hotel. Right across. We stay at the oh. Belmont Hotel. So, so oh, man. I, I've, it's hands down my, my greatest dining experience yeah. in the past month. And my wife and I wake up in the morning wanting to drive to Dallas just to have it again. So, we, sorry to No, 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 no. That whole little, that, that center with has the, the, the uh, across from the hotel. Yeah. And do you ever eat at Smoke, which was associated with the Belmont? No, I just, we just stayed at the Belmont Two weeks ago, oh, uh, some God. friends of mine are about to open a restaurant at the um, uh, Belmont, and that's what got us to are go they, over They're going to take over the old the, smoke? They're taking over the old smoke location. Mm-hmm. Um, smoke was fantastic, too. It was amazing. And across the street from the Belmont, there there's a series of apartment complexes, Taco Deli, Tin Ramen, 
And what's the uh, what's the wine and meat shop that's also a restaurant? It, there's a and there's a juice bar right there. Yep. There's a it's a great little. Uh, it's a cool uh, vacation. Yeah, is is a neat space. It's space. a it's a three hours away, and uh, and you really don't have to leave that little walkable area if you want to eat fantastic food and have a cool hotel. You don't have to leave Ten Ramen. I, I've got to check that place <laughs> out. It's uh anyway. Next time so I go there, the three one eighty is drive to Dallas. That's right, and then eat food there. Don't fly back. Because you'll need an on-call pilot. Well, it's hard to leave Dallas without getting a job. That's true. That's true. When you go over there and eat, you end up getting a job, and you just stay there, evidently. Um, I I wanted to ask, and you don't have to answer this if you don't feel like it, but we were talking to Randolph, and he was we were saying, what do you think goes in the wine country location? He said, you know, what what's the deal? He said it's huge, it's way too big. That's always been a problem. Is do, do first of all, do you want to answer that question? Do you do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I really hope someone comes in there quickly and takes it off of my hands, right. uh, not to get in too much personal business. But it is a very large space. Um, I heard their commentary on the last one. Um, ironically, I have a feeling some of those guys were probably talking to some of the guys that we've been talking about because the food court. Um, came up which we've we actually researched extensively for the location um you know i it's a tough space and it's a giant space in a great location um and i guess what i'll say is i hope someone jumps all over it and takes it over um don't want to say too much more but on the foods Food court side, I think the food court's a trend. We were just talking about trends. Yeah. It's really neat. Um, but, you know, Josh and I, we've talked about this. It's a numbers game. And, you know, I we're still kind of a small market. And I just haven't been able to prove to myself and some of the guys that we've talked about and done the numbers on, like, the food court idea um, to find a comparable market that's successful with that, with the numbers we play with. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think food courts are neat in the fact that it's very low barrier of entry. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, the whole concept as a whole needs massive numbers. You know, you still need the same number of people coming through the space itself to make everything work. And, and that's hard. And the building itself is not necessarily completely set up for a food court. I mean, it, it, conceptually, I, it's it was easy. at Dillard's at some point. Yeah, I think it was before Michaels. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was, was a Michaels. It was a or a J.C. maybe. Something. It was a it was a department store of some kind. Yeah, and that was I mean that was our challenge. You know, I can our challenge in that is trying to make it a warmer space. And not a big box. And, you know, sometimes those challenges are hard to overcome. I mean, I think we, I, I don't have any really regrets. I mean, we we had lots of success in wine country and it was fun and it was a, a great run. And I, I, I mean, I have so many, you know, neat things that we did with it. But it kind of lived its life. And we, I thought we did a, as good of a job as we could have done in the space to break down the boxiness of it 
but I think it was just too big of a space. And, you know, there's more to it than what the consumer sees. I mean, the kitchen, I mean, I we were talking to someone yesterday, and they were like, everyone, all they want to do is have that kitchen. I said, well, I had the kitchen. It's not, you know, it's it's a big kitchen. It's a real big kitchen. And coming from the original wine country that was a real small kitchen, you know, all we wanted was a big kitchen. You know, we would sit there and say, just imagine if we had that kitchen across the street. Well, sometimes you get what you asked for and we got that kitchen but man that kitchen is almost too big it comes with a it comes with a jc penny yeah it's a yeah. it was a tough it was a commissary kitchen and commissary kitchen takes a commissary crew to keep it up and 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 maintained and cleaned i mean it yeah. was just sometimes it's easier to clean an apartment kitchen than it is a you know i mean it yeah um where where do you like to go in town? I mean, not, not where you don't like to go. You don't have to throw anybody under the bus, obviously. But just, you know, where if you and your wife go out on a date, like what's a good culinary experience here in Shreveport that you enjoy and appreciate? Um, so I live in South Shreveport, which I love downtown and, and happy to talk about my love for downtown. But I do live in South Shreveport. Um, my family, we enjoy uh, neighborhood places. So I eat at uh, uh, Gabe's and Frank's out in South Shreveport. Yeah. Um, Gabe is an incredible friend and incredible talent for this market. And the food he's putting out is top notch. Um, Frank's, I'm a fan of a nice glass of wine and oysters on the half shell. And my kids love oysters on the half shell. So we enjoy that a lot. Um, yeah. I had lunch at Key Mexico uh, yesterday. Those guys are rock stars and I mean, I think they're kicking ass, and I just, I, I think they're great. Um, I love what they're doing. Uh, yeah, Gabe's place is El Cabo Verde. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I, yeah, but El Cabo food. Verde, and he's yeah. opening up a new place uh, near Whole Foods uh, this fall that's going to be a seafood base, and I'm looking forward to that's fantastic. what he's going to do there. Um, Lucky Palace is, is on the nostalgic side for me. I mean, it was really where I spent a lot of time when I moved to this market, Lim is second to none in hospitality, um, so I, I enjoy Lucky Palace. Um, I'll tell you, I like I like what Pizza Rev's doing. It's a it's a chain, but those guys brought something that I thought was crazy to this market, and I enjoy it with my kids. Um, yeah, that's a cool spot to hang out. Great beer selection. Great yeah, patio. it's a neat. It's, I, I I told them to their face they were crazy. 10 different times when they were building that place. And little did I know, I mean, the success they've seen, I, I think it's a neat spot. I like the whole feel of it. And I think they have a good product for a great price. I, I think they've kind of nailed the market. Well, that's awesome. Um, what's your uh, What's your favorite thing to cook at home? Something I've never cooked before. I think that's the challenge for me. Like I'm, a, I'm kind of obsessed with new things. Um, and, and especially in the past couple months I've had a little more time on my hand to be at home and cook and kind of reignite the passion of cooking and so it's just been fun to try new things um, I'm fascinated with Japanese culture um, especially in the culinary side of it I've I can't read enough or try enough technique wise of Japanese cuisine uh, you know I was taught basically by a French chef and French techniques, and we, we kind of laugh. Uh, 
chefs around the country that I'm friends with, we laugh now that no one told us about Japan when we were going through this learning process. And, you know, it's, it's one of the oldest, richest culinary um, techniques out there. And it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think they, everything they do is so incredible and it changes the depths of flavor. So what are some of the key differences between the French techniques that you learned in culinary school and, and what you, what you're now learning later about the Japanese technique? As you grow older, I guess, and maybe it's maturity, there's this just true, for me, it's a passion for perfection, like chasing perfection. I mean, I don't think you can ever reach it, but the Japanese culture is so focused on that and so detail-oriented, and a lot of this just goes over most consumers' heads. It was, It's very irrational in the way they do it. I mean, if you look at, I mean, Saison and... Uh, Saison in San Francisco, a Michelin three-star restaurant. I mean, they're, they have the live fish tanks, you know, and, and they, they, they kill the fish with this wire so it doesn't affect. I mean, it's, it's so detail-oriented, but learning that base teaches you so much about everything else you do and cook. And for me, it's to see the passion in how they cook and how they see things it is inspiring. And, I mean, to the point of, I mean, what does Shreveport have two seasons? We don't even have four. Um, we have the, both. We, we, have, we have both seasons. <laughs> right. The, uh, the Japanese, like, their their food is based on, I want to say it's 57 or 67 seasons a year. Their seasons last, like, four to six days. That's, that's too many seasons. No, I'm, I'm not saying it's too... <laughs> The right amount. I'm just saying they're so focused on how things change and and in the right time to serve the right thing. I mean, you go anywhere in the United States and ask for a tomato, there's not a day of the year you don't get it. Well, we're in Shreveport. We should all know when a tomato's best. I mean, that's one thing we can grow here. And a tomato in the winter isn't good. It, oh, it's, yeah, I, have, I have two questions. One, have you seen... Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is an Ang Lee movie from like 94. It's uh, about yes. the, the father who makes the food. Yes. Okay. You should, I think we talked about this, yeah, Josh. Yeah. But, um, and do you think, uh, to, speaking of tomatoes, like if someone were to grow tomatoes in a building downtown and sell them, I, I think Cotton Street Farms start? is, what's that? I think they're about to, they've just. Well, well I'm saying, do you, do you think that that's something that will, Knowing what you know about food and the culture here, do you think that that's a place where if, if they can make a tomato that's as good as the tomatoes that you can go to the farm stand right now and get in October, do, do you like if they can still make that in October, will people go and get it? But like you're saying, you know, most places you can get a really good tomato. I'm not all, sure all the, the masses year. understand the difference. I mean, I think people still go and put tomato on the grocery list in November and, and January, and they get a house. tomato, and they don't necessarily care or mind that it's grainy and lacking flavor and basically water-filled. Um, you know, for me, I, 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 I grow tomatoes in my backyard. I, I'm kind of always seeking the best tomato. I mean, I, there's nothing greater than a tomato sandwich, and I mean, I just... We had these Cherokee purples that are growing, and I sliced one for the first time last night. It was on my bison tongue sandwich, uh, and it was phenomenal. That with just a little soak, but I mean, salt. That that's the 
to me, it means something. I'm not sure that translates to the market. Um, but hopefully they're, they're wildly successful with it. You know, I think they've got a good idea. Um, we support them. We're excited to start supporting them more. Um, when a bit of it, we talked about this before as well, a bit of it about getting something fresh that's from uh, one mile away stays on, can stay on your shelf for a longer period of time before you have to, you know, use it or throw it out as opposed to something that came from Mexico that's already been sitting somewhere that's then delivered to you, which then makes your margin. Everything has right. a shelf life. Right. We and, have and a that, shelf life. We right. all, everything has a shelf life. But that's a better, if, if, if you could do that, that's a better product. 100%. I mean, that's, that's the taste changes on something. I mean, the easiest experiment in the world is take an onion Probably one you can get fairly fresh. Slice it and take a bite of it. Leave it on the counter for a day and taste it the next day. It doesn't taste like an onion. It's oxidized. It's changed. It, it It's a different product. Um, and I think that goes with all food. I mean, it just, you can't just put everything in cryovac and freeze it and it'd be the same thing. No, no, that's what, so I've been, whenever I first came back here, I was just trying to think of something to do. You and I have had a conversation about this before, but like, there's all these, you know, buildings. We talked a lot about downtown and buildings downtown and space downtown and all these. If there's just a building sitting there rotting, can we go in there, put some lights up, grow some tomatoes, and then get them to, you know, a local restaurant and then change some of that? Is that a, is it, in your opinion, is that doable or is that I'm not sure the market's crazy. there. And the one thing I'm going to say is I'm, I would be scared that you would be taking away potential business from guys that are farming right now that may be trying to do that um you know i'm i'm one of those guys that teaches my son if you have ten dollars act like you have eight and in a city like this i think we need to start acting like we we have eight versus 12 and make sure we're supporting those that are out there doing it and where i'm my only argument against that is i'm very close to many farmers in this market and i'm always banging on their door saying i need more produce or i want more of this i want more of this and they just look at me like, yeah, whatever, Jason, no one else cares. You're, you know, it's, if there was a market for it, we would already be doing it. Um, I'm not telling you there's not a market for you. I'm just telling you, it seems that there's some guys out there really pushing hard to do this that have had trouble finding a business model that's sustainable doing it. Sometimes it's disheartening. I mean, I would love to go, I mean, I tried, we had a farm, um, to raise it and you just have this dream of the owning the whole circle of life and that's what John Besh is trying to do down on the North Shore, right? He's got a, a farm where he's growing hard. I don't know if he's still I don't know if he's still doing but right. he did. He, he uh, did it for a while. Yeah, and um it's in Abita. Yeah. In Abita Springs. Uh, you know, I I dream of that being the case. I don't know how sustainable it is. It's you, you go into bigger markets and you walk to a farmer's market or you go, you know, I was in Colorado and I went to some of the most beautiful farms in the world and the bounty was just, it was amazing what they had out there. I mean, and packed full of stuff. I mean, just incredible. And you come back to Shreveport going, I want to do that here, but you, you have to know your market. And, and I'm not, I want to see some of these guys 
have overwhelming success where there becomes a demand wanting more first. And that's what I haven't quite seen, especially on the produce side. I mean, I've been fighting for more produce, you know, because if you go to the farmer's market, I mean, you can get incredible blueberries, incredible tomatoes, incredible cucumbers, eggplant, and peppers, and corn for four weeks. You know, but let's be creative. Let's do some other stuff. But those guys know the business better than I do. And I think if there was a market for it, they'd be doing it. I'm excited to see what they do downtown. Yeah. I'm, they I'm, just got their, I think it's all set up now. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I, it just seems like cool. You know, that's, I've never seen that happen before. And yep. I, you know, hopefully it works. What, uh, you're, you're talking about Japan a minute ago. It reminded me of the Euro dreams of sushi. I know you've seen that. Mm-hmm. that uh, have you seen Euro dreams? Oh, sushi? Yeah. <laughs> like absolute obsession with rice where he only let his son cook rice for like 40 years. And he was 65 and he was still, the guy who cooked the rice, and then maybe he had, maybe he'll let him go to the fish market once or twice a week. I think that's it's borderline. I mean, it's obsession. Yeah, but it's obsession for perfection. It's you know, I mean, you walk into these restaurants that are three generations old. I haven't walked into in Japan. You've watched the documentaries on these yakitori, you know, places that they're serving chicken on a stick, but. When you do the research, they're having chicken wings on the stick is cooked different than the chicken breast on the stick and the chicken thigh on the stick, and it's perfection. But and that's it's everything. It's also it's chicken on a stick in a closet in a subway station where a million people go by every single day. So it's like the opposite of the issue you have here. Oh yeah, one hundred. Where it's like you, you, you know, I'm not open in a yakitori place. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you have a closet that's handy. You know, over at the Parish Targo, maybe maybe it's a pop-up. But I think part of that is, I mean, I think just for better, for worse, I'm not knocking any of it. I mean, we as consumers in America, not Shreveport, have just fast food nation, you you know, Amazon, everything's changed. I mean, you the consumer wants something different. And it's just nice for me to research those that are still holding on to tradition and perfection and not compromise in the food world. And my my reference to that was on what am I cooking at home. Oh, no, yeah, this absolutely. This was definitely not on what am oh, I no. opening tomorrow. Yakitori yeah, Closet, yeah, yeah. the new <laughs> Jason Well, we've Brady already joint. established that you're not opening a buffet, and that's very disappointing and disheartening, but I didn't think you were going to open a Japanese place either. But, okay, so... So the consumer goes to the farmer's market and they buy great blueberries and they buy great cucumbers and, and they maybe they have a hunter in the family or maybe they hunt and they, they kill their own deer and they duck. Or, how does the consumer at home become a better cook, a better chef? Like what hacks do you suggest or what cookbooks do you suggest to learn without going to culinary school some of the techniques that, that you know are tricks of the trade? I mean, we live in the YouTube world now. I mean, I'm, I've learned from my kids that you can learn just about anything on YouTube. I mean, it's pretty... What's the best thing you've learned off YouTube? Uh, I learned that I could not change the headlight on a Suburban. Um, I actually went out in my garage and thought I was going to change the headlight on my Suburban. And my son said, you should check out YouTube. And within about two minutes of the video, I realized what disaster I was about to cause and saved myself a whole lot of trouble. You learned not not to to take your car apart. Um, But it's fascinating. I think, you know, I'm I'm a... a very big cookbook collector. I read a whole lot and I enjoy 
the reference material and learning and just foraging for ideas. Um, but TV has brought modern TV and by modern TV, YouTube and all these videos and everything on your phone. I mean, you can see so much firsthand and it's pretty amazing what you can learn. Um, it's funny. My son watches a something on YouTube and it's a, a kind of goofy guy cooking, but my son's inspired by it. He'll come back and be like, Hey, I want to, let's make a French omelet versus, you know, this, or I want to make a Japanese omelet. Or, you know, he talked about the, the Michelin lady and crab omelet in Bali. And I mean, this is my 12 year old. Wow. And I mean, when I was 12, that wasn't an option unless you could look up in, you know, the B version of encyclopedia Bali. And it had a picture of the crab lady. I mean, I mean, I still had to go to the bookshelves. So, I mean, I think there's so many opportunities to do that. And I think eating, I mean, just go out and try new things. I mean, I think first, if you want to learn how to cook or you want to learn how to prepare things, you have to be open-minded to try things. Um, and just go out and try it. Like a buffet, like you, you would have to. <laughs> Man, y'all are stuck on this yeah. buffet world. Uh, well, <laughs> good luck with the I'm, buffet. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had the sushi at Chang's on the corner. <laughs> I'm serious, on the corner of Yuri and... Uh, and I guess that's King's there. Yeah. It, the sushi's fantastic. But I've, I've been in there eating sushi at Chang's. And it's no longer a Chinese buffet. But I've seen people walk in. And, and Peter and Eileen Chang, Chang are, are great folks. But they've converted this from what used to be a Chinese buffet into a sushi bar slash, you know, you got to order off the menu if you want But Chinese it was food. a Shoney's before that. Was it? I think so. I'm sure it, it was a Shoney's. Yeah. But uh, I've seen folks walk in there with a real puzzled look on their face, look around, look at the hostess, have a little chat, and then turn around and walk out because there's not a buffet in there. Golden Corral is one of the top 20 chains every single year in growth and sales. Also, uh, Stuffed and Busted has gone there as well. <laughs> just, just I've, I've, I've never I've, been. I just, I just, for example, I mean, if you got into this yeah, business yeah. to make, just strictly to make money, yeah. Golden Corral is one of your best bets, um, and there's a reason for that. I'm, I'm not. You get a whole meal for thirteen dollars. It's just not and my the, game. And the plates aren't small. There's not. They're not advertising their small plates. I mean, right. is it is it an all you can eat? Is Golden Corral all you can eat? I I have no idea. Uh, it's it's strange that no one in this room has been to a Golden Corral yet. We all are very interested in buffets, I, and so as. <laughs> As your consultant on your next buffet, as y'all buffet, should do some research. As the buffet consultant, we are bringing Chris J is coming in here, and we're going to talk buffets for an hour and a half. Yep. All right. Um, well, we'll try to get off the buffet thing. You all right? So you you've operated in what I what I consider to be the the high dollar corridor of town, the the Line Avenue Piermont corridor. You've you've operated in Ashley Ridge, not only a bottle shop, but um, but you had Zocalo there for a while. You've you know, you've done a lot of catering gigs. You've had a food truck, which is completely the opposite of the, the high dollar place. You've um, you had a bottle shop on Florida Lucas, right in front of uh, a neighborhood where you think a lot of people are buying wine on their way home. Um, seemed like a great idea. You know, I mean, I used to drive by it and buy wine a good bit when um, when I lived out that way. So you also have a downtown place. You've got Parish Taco. It's right in the middle of art space. It's right across the street from the Robinson, 
Um, it's right by Rhino, and right, you know, Rhino has all the apartments up top. So, what have you learned from operating restaurants and bottle shops, catering, and food truck, in you know every corner of the town? Like, what's what does downtown need? What does Parish Taco need to uh, to move the town forward or to move the culinary uh, experience forward? Uh, I think downtown's growing. I've been down here for three years. Um, I can honestly say it doesn't grow at the pace I would like it to grow. Uh, but it's definitely evolving to a better place. Um, I think there's some perception issues downtown needs to overcome with people outside of downtown. Um, I hear safety and parking all the time, which just drives me insane, um, especially as someone that has operated in every corner of this town. In Bossier, we have had less issues downtown uh, than anywhere from a safety. I mean, I feel safer with employee everything about downtowns feels safe especially in the spot we are um parking i mean as someone that has lived in big cities and traveled a lot uh, we have ample parking in this town um i mean people say they can't find a place to park at parish taco and we're next door to two parking lots um so i think a lot of that perception becomes reality so that's you know, once again, educating the consumer, getting people more reasons to come downtown. Uh, I think we have a very, very big downtown for our for our market, mm-hmm. um, which I think because downtown was everything in a generation before me in the, I guess, I would say probably the, the 50s to 70s. It was kind of the this booming thing. I've heard stories. I mean, I don't remember it. Um, so I think revitalizing downtown as it's being done is is we can keep it at a central core and grow out and not try to do everything at once and just build critical mass i'm excited about some projects that are coming on board around us uh shreveport commons is going to be a great thing which is coming on i think i don't know if i can i think november 1st end of october it will be opening up with some great uh, events coming up I mean municipals doing more and more stuff I just I think getting more people to invest in downtown uh, it's easier said than done Um, but it is growing and I think there's opportunity inexpensive opportunity around downtown that will grow into it well, you know the market, and you're a finance guy, so you know the numbers. And uh, I think you and Thomas and I had the conversation a few weeks ago that we're just obsessed with this idea that we're a, a big town, but really we're a small town. So w- talk about the small town aspect of Shreveport that you see and, and our our own misperception of our own identity, and then and then maybe kind of parlay that into what what should go right across the street from Parish Taco in a couple of vacant buildings that could make Parish Taco's foot traffic increase. I'd like to put a barbecue place across the street. All right. Um, you know, I think the small town, you know, I hear, I get so frustrated. I sit in a lot of meetings, a lot of development ideas, a lot of business opportunity meetings, and people are like, we need this. And they reference Dallas, or they reference Houston, or they they reference Birmingham either. And, and it's just like, whoa, 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 guys. Six Flags is in Dallas. You know what? Put Six Flags in Shreveport, it fails. You know, I mean, it just doesn't work. It's a numbers game. Um and so we just need to we need to look at our own identity, see what is 
going to be supported or how it's going to be supported. Um, you know, I think the city, I, I feel we have a new administration that's going to be advancing that ball a little more, like getting out and trying to bring more in or supporting those that are going to do things in this um, market. But um, just really looking at our own identity and seeing what we are. I mean, we have, in the past, we're not seeing growth from a population standpoint. Right. I mean, that's we're seeing. that's a that's a it's a bad number if if you're in in business. We're seeing a rise in poverty, which makes that first number exponentially worse. Um, yet we're gaining a lot of competition, especially like in my segment in the restaurant business. I mean, we have I want to say it's twenty eight to thirty percent more restaurants than we did twenty years ago, without a change in population and an increase in poverty. I mean, it, it doesn't take a post-grad degree to figure out what happens there. There's the same, less people having to choose more options. And I'm, I'm just using that as an example. We, we need to make sure what we have is supported and grow it and do it right and build organically that way. Um, and don't model after big cities. We're not a big city. We're... We're, we're a smaller market. I think, you know, I, I would love, I'd love to see downtown, whether it's in, with the city support and any kind of uh, subsidies or stuff, build one area and make it a more destination for people outside of the downtown area. You know, Bozier's done a great job with their, uh, their project. I mean, I think it's, it's the East Bank, the East Bank. It's doing, um, I don't know all the details, but I'm, I have friends in the project down there that have, you know, the, the city is very supportive of that really focused area. I mean, they've taken a small area and said, we are going to do great at this area, and we're going to grow it organically. And I mean, Oshner's going in there. I mean, they've got a lot of really neat things coming around. And Do you, do you think that's because they focus on it as, we're a small, we're small, we want to start here with this core, is that... I don't, I don't know how they came to it, but it, it seems to me that at some point some groups got together and said, whoa, 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 hold on. We're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. we got to come together and say, what's our master plan and where are we going to start? And we need a nucleus to start it. And, and it's here's, three blocks. Like yeah, it's three or four, but it's like so small, but it's... But it's packed. Yeah. I mean, they're finding mad success over there. And I think that's, they've done a great job of it. And I think there's some, you know, selfishly, I think, my area of downtown is the 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 right area mm -hmm. but we have municipal we have i mean first methodist has put a ton of investment into the 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 area they their campus mm -hmm. municipals there you have rhino you have robinson uh shreveport common shrack and all the things they've touched uh the strand you know it's a great area to to i mean you have you have housing you have restaurants you have you know courthouse you have missing link is the, so you take missing link to first methodist yeah yes is that is that our east bank is that something that the city could possibly get behind and i don't know if we have enough money to even put in that direction but is that you know how, how does that look on paper with the city support yeah i mean i it might not be it might be private support it, it needs to you know but basically everyone needs to work together and not completely compete against each other you know we have especially with the missing link and Robinson have come in and, you know, these 
whether they're art walks, art walks or uh, pub crawls, that you kind of team up. You know, I mean, the rising tide's good for all ships, and you know, more critical mass in one area brings more people in. And if the missing link brings people down every week, they're going to drive by Parish Taco. You know, if Robinson brings people, you know, or we, I mean, it's everyone works together to bring it all together and, and work together. So I think, you know, that's, I try not to look at this through complete bias as I have a business down there. Yeah. But I mean, I think by example, that's how places have built. I mean, I will go against my rule and compare to Fort Worth. I mean, they built their downtown as once, I mean, they had big money private money that came in to do it, but they built five city blocks to start with. And then it just continued to grow. Um, yeah, they did. They've done a good, you know, good job with exactly what you're talking about, starting and, and just saying like, hey, this is where we're focusing. But that took, you know, deep pockets to, to show up. But then also those deep pockets, once those deep pockets, you know, piled in, you know, it gives, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say it. It builds momentum. I'm not going to say the thing that we don't say. Oh, we don't say the thing. But that's what it is. It's like once they start, everybody shows up to to be a part. Or the chicken or egg. Oh. I just had to say it. Five for five. Um, So, all right. I I mean, I I think you're right. I think, and and we've heard from a number of people, just real estate guys, and I think even some government guys have said, you know, we have a huge downtown, you know, square footage wise. Um, Block by block wise, it is a huge geographical area for such a small market. Um, like we overbuilt our downtown between 1965 and 85 or something. I don't know. But That's the, the Jeff Everson, which I haven't checked this, but he said we roughly have the same amount of space as like Memphis right. uh, and in the downtown yeah, yeah, area. It, it, or a much even a larger one. I, I can't remember, but... the. Was it Memphis? I think that's the one that Jeff and I talked about. Uh, yeah, so we should probably check that, but not. So it's I almost like too it. much to comprehend. Like when you're like, oh, we need to revitalize downtown. And when you really start at like Fannin or Caddo and you drive all the way to Crockett or Cotton or whatever street, and then it's a huge geographical area. So I think you're onto something with. Start with. It's just the smallest few block area. First Methodist to the Slattery building. Yeah, and then, all right. Once we get this done, then it's yeah. then move. Well, then you from there down. If it's successful, because, well, if it becomes successful, you're going to have spillover. You're going to need yeah. more. You're going to the park will be overflowing with people. So we're going to need another green space right. over here. Or man, there's too much of a line at Robinson. We need another this or yeah. you know whatever it becomes. But what happens is when you're spread out, and I mean Shreveport's guilty of this all over. When everyone's barely doing it. You're yeah. never going to grow. Yeah. So is that a marketing job that the city needs? I mean, you know, if, if we take what we know is, is, is not the, I shouldn't say wealthy city. I mean, the, the city government itself is not sitting on piles and piles of money to make this happen. But where do they, where do they utilize some of this? Any capital they have, or do they, do they put it in a marketing effort? Do they put it in, uh, where, where do you see this thing going? I mean, I think this is from a city side it's a little above my pay grade i don't i mean i think we the city fights many different issues that i won't get into from a political standpoint sure sure um we fight issues on a state level too um you know i mean i i I don't have the perfect answer on how to make it happen but you have to revenue out and by revenue out you have to make yourself profitable as a as a city as an area 
Um, you know, I, I think if if we go from losing 10 people a month to gaining one person a month, we win. You know, that's a huge step. Um, and I don't, I, I think these are all different numbers that go into the equation. And, and so I don't think one of them fixes. It's just kind of, uh, all I can do is try to perfect what we're doing in the area we're doing and convince people to do what we're doing next to us to help it. And, and I'll ask it this way. Is there anything the city can do other than dump money into a project? Uh, more specifically, you've got some vacant buildings right across from Parish. Um, one was a, a salon. One was a CPA firm. There's another building on the corner. Then you have the bar. Then you have the Robinson. Then you have a couple more vacancies. Um, is there anything the city can do to incentivize people to move in there? Like as a, as a business owner down there, you know what the pros and cons are. You know you guys had to fight to get the patio in front of Rhino, and you've succeeded in that. I think really the, the one thing I'd ask the city of right now, because they are being progressive, they are kind of pushing to help. I mean, we are getting patio seating. They are working with us to do it. Um, parking is not a big issue, though I would love for them to maybe transfer a few of the parking ticket attendants into a different department so I could get less tickets. Um, but, you know, I think educating on downtown and the pros of downtown, um, more marketing of downtown, I'm not sure where that falls, but, yeah. uh, you know, I think I think once you get people down and see it, I mean, we've done it just with Parish. I mean, when I we got into Parish, I couldn't imagine someone bringing their family down to eat on a Tuesday night in downtown Shreveport. It wasn't even in our business plan. But the people that are coming, I mean, we have families that it's on their weekly routine to come from South Highlands. I mean, we're just four minutes down Line yeah, Avenue sure. to it. And it's that education that, oh my gosh, I can go down there. I can park right in front of it. I can eat a great meal and I can go home just like I go to any other restaurant in yeah. town. So those are, I think, beneficial. Um, you know, Kallenberg, I, I, I'm sure people thought he was totally crazy when he when he did the... Um, Gregory, if you're listening, you are totally crazy. Well, the first the first film prize. And I remember talking to, to people around Shreveport. They were like, "What what is this? What are you film prize thing? And coming downtown and seeing downtown crowded. And now, every October, first weekend in October, it's packed right in front of Parish Taco. There's hundreds of people walking around. Some of them don't even know that there's a film prize going on. They're just there for the cooking competition. Well, I mean, this yeah. year, I can I don't think I can be the one to announce it, but the, the people coming in for food prize this year, it's... It's like a star-studded group of people that you couldn't imagine coming to Shreveport, Louisiana um, to, to talk, to judge, to cook, to, to be on display from big cities with big awards, big names behind them. I mean, it's, a, it's awesome. And that's I mean, an out, that brings people to downtown. That's an outgrowth of the film prize that, I mean, every year just gets more and more people. So, I mean, like, yeah. So maybe that's the thing, like more... Gregory, we need, if you're listening, we need more events. Maybe more Kallenbergs. More, can clones. we get some more Kallenberg? We need about 10 more Can Kallenberg. we get oh, Tobias boy. back here? Maybe a buffet of Gregory. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, I mean, that that's one time a year that I'm downtown, and it's not a Festival Plaza situation. It is a right there in the core, right by First Methodist, right by the Robinson, where it's just packed. And there's lines in front of all the, the venues where the movies are shown. And then the the cooking event downtown, well, it's, it's packed. That's okay. That's a single handed one guy's. You know, now his mom has been around here doing things for the culture of the yeah for, forever. 
And, you know, he falls very close in line to that same, you know, he has the same spirit and, and he wants to see things happen. Uh, and he's making things, he's one guy and he's making things happen. Yep. And I think that if, if you talk to him, he would argue that like, Hey, if you want to make something happen, come down here and do it. Like no one's going to stop you, you know, come, come have yep. your event, like set it up. We can, we can do, and he, and he does it and he does it every year. And that's a great asset. But for, from the same standpoint, if you were able to have that every Saturday in that area, then, then, you know, maybe he has to move, you know, a couple blocks down to, to have his event happen where it's not just completely like you're saying, like, Hey, it's not enough. You know, there's, there's too many people in line. At, but, but that, I mean, that shows thing. what downtown can be. I'm sure your sales and Rhino sales are through the roof that weekend. Oh, we, we enjoy it. I mean, I've been a part of the prize from the uh, beginning, since, since the beginning. I mean, I've seen it since its infancy grow to what it is today. And it's, I feel it's just a small portion of what it's going to be with the vision and where it's, where it's going. But I mean, I think, you know, he's a great example of someone kind of putting his money where his mouth is and saying, let's go do this. And I think there's a lot of opportunity down there and, you know, it's, it's trying to, I guess, quiet or shush the naysayers and bring the optimism up. Um, You know, sure. It's easy I'm one of those people's I always have trouble when someone walks through and says this isn't working. You know, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, I can point <laughs> out the problems, but let's figure out how to fix them. Um, and I don't have the answers to all of it. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's distressing to see the state and the condition that it's in when compared to other states from business opportunities to raising a family and all that. But I've, I've raised my family here. I was raised here. I've survived. I've done great. Um, cost of living's low. You know, it's, I live in South Streetport and I, I dropped my son off at work at eight and I was at Rhino at eight ten in downtown Streetport. I mean, we, you can't do that most places. I mean, I spoke that, uh, Jimmy Campbell, uh, you know, Preston's brother-in-law, yeah. uh, you know, and he, that's what he, he moved back from Baton Rouge. And that was one of the things he's like, this is so nice to be able to get in my car, go to work and be there in 10 minutes, as opposed to get in my car, sit there for 45 minutes just to get, you know, less of a distance from, from where I'm going to where I'm, I'm going to end up. So I don't know, maybe that's another part of that. We've talked about this just about every episode as well as like, how do we tell people, Hey, if you want to come here, uh, doors are open, come on in. Uh, you can you can live here. It's cheap. You can get where you're going. You, you want to do something? We'd love to help you. No, and I think I think also just looking at you know we have some problems we need to face. Let, we, let's we, talk about a couple of them. Let's try to figure. I mean that that's one thing that I've tried to ask every guest is like what problems, what roadblocks are we having to get more people to come here? I think one of the biggest problems we could start with with our city right now as a whole is 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 poverty, and this is something that takes a lot of research and it's a it's a subject that a lot of people don't want to talk about but it is something that it it's the Achilles heel that hurts a community you know it's when people don't have opportunity it 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 crushes the next generation and it compounds on itself and you know working on ways to give opportunity to those that have not had opportunity is really important 
Um, it then coincides with education. You know, I think on some of y'all's podcasts, y'all talk about the public education here. Um, I was very fortunate growing up with a great education here. I think, I think you went to Bird. Went to Bird. Went um, to Stony. All public schools. Yeah, my 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 kids have gone to public schools uh, for the most part um, through the magnet program, but you know, there's our education system needs fixing, and I I, I don't want to use the cliche term we're not supposed to use on here, but I think some focus on that needs to be, you know, whether it's think tanks of young thinkers in this town coming together with um, politicians and coming, I mean, I tackle some of this stuff. We have a somewhat broken education system when you look at it for what the education is for all, not just what your kids can have. You know, I mean, I I think um, I didn't have much fear in my kids' education in this market. But there's many in certain parts of this town that don't feel that they have the opportunity for education. Um, and I think that's a that causes long-lasting problems for us just economically as a city and for growth as a city. And you can't you you can't throw events on the side that fix that. You know, like you can't cover that up with shiny new buildings you you can't you 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 have to focus on it somehow i don't have the answer i'm i'm just very intrigued on working on trying to work with people that may be smarter than me at that and and trying to come up with i think that's just a a really tough deal um i think the airport i think we've seen a lot of improvement on that but i mean i know that from a business side it's i've heard a lot of complaints. I was on a military affairs committee once and, you know, contractors coming in, they didn't want to have meetings at Barksdale because it was, they couldn't fly in and out in the same day. You know, DC people and, you know, they were like, we'd rather go to this other base. I know it's a small thing, but I mean, it, it, it ends up, what it ends up doing is transferring meetings from Shreveport to somewhere else. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I know there's some good people on, on that working on it. Um, but I think that's important, and I think bringing in more people, and I think educating on the cost of living, the being able to move back and forth, you know, the Jimmy Campbell argument, um, it's one of those things I I have my ups and downs about Shreveport, and there's days that I just want to move out west and live in a different town, and, you know, but I have my family here, we have a, a great group of friends, you know, there's a lot of fun things to do around this town and the cost of living. I mean, it's really inexpensive to to do fun things in this town. Yeah, I've, I've talked to two people in the last two days, neither of whom are from here. And one person loves Shreveport. She's not from here. She's from a town in Mississippi that she says, this, is, this reminds me of home. She's got a house in New Orleans, but she rents up here. She loves Shreveport. She's only been here like two months, but just thinks people are friendly, food's great. She's also got a good job. She's educated, employed. Um, and another person who's been here for almost a year, like eight months, can't stand it. Can't wait to move to Dallas and all that. And I, I think they approach, I think they've approached it with two different attitudes. And uh, I think that if you approach it with a positive attitude and you come in and, and if, yeah, depending on where you live and, and how you approach your your day-to-day existence here in Shreveport, like, it can be a great town. 
you can you can see all the positives if you focus on them. So I mean, if, if you if you're trying to get someone who just moved to town to really like the town, where do you take them and what do you do? Well, for me, yeah, like if you're hosting, or if you're maybe not even trying to impress, but like you know, say one of your culinary buddies comes in from from Charles or from you know that you went to school with in Charleston. And you're not trying to impress him with the fanciest food or anything because he couldn't care less. He just wants to see the town you live in. Like, what do you show him? What, what, what's impressive about well, the I mean, town? for me, I, I, I take him 10 minutes and I'm on Cross Lake. Yeah. I mean, you're right there in the city. You're on a, a waterway. Um, I don't know. You take him out to the country. I just, I'm an outdoors person. So for me, yeah. like, I can be hunting 12 minutes from my garage and... I can be downtown in this studio 10 minutes from my garage. You can't do that other places. I mean, it's just everything's right there. I mean, my son and I go fishing, and we can trailer a boat and fish after 5 o'clock one evening. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. just it's some of those things. Are, for me, that's kind of the focus I have that I, I love about this area. Yeah. Um, I think we have some incredible history. I mean, you know, I, municipal's just amazing. Some of our music history and arts history and stuff that we have um, is pretty cool. Um, Yellow fever, we got that. Yeah, we do have you that. Know. Did uh, you see that uh, Falon did one of his dinners at municipal last weekend? Yeah, in Winston. Yeah, the uh, Winston Hall. Winston Hall. He is a, you need to have him on the show. I, he's presented to a Rotary Club uh, meeting that I went to, and yeah. it was fantastic. In fact, I just wish I could have Winston in my pocket and just walk around town. He's the greatest cheerleader. Um, and he's not from here. He's, yeah, he just loves it, though. He, he loves it, and he is a incredible voice for our area. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's just so much. We brought in, you, you asked, we brought in, two chefs a few years ago and did an event at municipal and I remember them standing on stage going, this is where Elvis I, I think made it. And they were, and I was like, yeah, so what? Who cares? Like, and, and they were like, they were like, take my picture. I was like, it's just a stage. Like, what do you, like, I didn't get it. Like, it didn't mean I just, I've walked by the statue so many times and it, I got it. So what? But they were and they were from San Francisco and they were kind of awestruck by it. I went to the, what was the name of that event or what? Oh my gosh, you put me on the spot. It was, uh, I, th I think I went to that. It was a number of years ago, right? Yes, it was, uh, Evan and Sarah Rich from Rich Table. Uh, we did a big thing at Municipal. That was a lot of fun. I'd forgotten about that. All right, so, uh, Winston Hall's coming on. I, I got to reach out to him. Who else should I get on this podcast to talk about Shreveport and how to fix some of our problems and, and, and where we go from here? Um, so many people, um, Grant Knuckle, Andrew Crawford, those two guys I have coffee with a lot. Uh, they're a young generation that's just pushing and pushing hard to to do more things. Um, and actively doing. And well, actively they are actively doing. getting out there and doing things. Um, Gregory, you could probably take the morning off, just tell him to come in and where the microphone is, he'll talk. Um what do you think he could do? Like, you know, Gregory, Gregory's just an hour twenty, just straight, without uh, anyone else. Two days straight. Um, I mean, you have to be in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of uh, 
young people out there pushing to want change that need to be kind of brought together. Um, you know, I, I think it'd be fun to try to think some of the older generation that has just watched some of the change. I'm just trying to think of who I'd recommend. I don't want to throw anyone under the the bus. Um, in downtown, who's doing Jim Walsh? Have you had? Are you, you well, yeah, actually here? Jim Walsh was supposed to be here today? Okay. Jim Walsh is supposed to be on Jim this Walsh. podcast every single time we do the podcast, and then we end up we always have a, a backup, and then yeah. the backup comes, and then Jim falls down the stairs. Um, I think it'd be fun to have. I, I think Adrian. I'd um, love to have Adrian on here. You know, I think Adrian has a very tough job ahead of him. I can't imagine anyone that would want the position he's in. But um, he's a sharp guy that's been out there in the world and seen the world and has come back to Shreveport. Um, and I think he'd be a neat, especially now, he's been in the office for almost six months. Yeah. Um, a perspective. Mm-hmm. He might, I'd like to hear his perspective off the air too. Um of just what he's been through and, you know, what hills he has to climb. Um, Anybody in the food business or on the food scene that's really interesting to you that I think you should think I should bring on? Yeah, there's some, um, I'm trying to think of guys, you know, Blake Jackson. Absolutely. He's a talker and he's educated and vision. Um, had his uh, had part of his menu from Bistro by Rones last week. You know, he has a, an evening menu that he put together for them. Yeah, uh, he's, he's doing he's some cool a, stuff over online. I mean, he's a neat guy, and um, you know, he's a he's all for Shreveport mm-hmm. and um, pushing hard. Um, we'll put Blake in as backup for Jim Walsh next week. And uh, <laughs> what? Okay, so tell you mentioned you want to open a barbecue shop right across the street from your own Parish Taco. I just. I guess ultimately I would love a downtown where I could have two or three concepts all within walking distance just because I'm lazy and it'd be easy just to not have no, to get in the I mean, car and walk back and forth. Tell, and tell me what your vision for the barbecue shop is. I kind of want them um, um, culinary, chef techniques taken to barbecue. You know, we've, as chefs in fine dining, you, you kind of love going back to the rustic cooking on the side. I don't know. We've all my friends around the country that are in fine dining. We end up meeting around open fire and drinking beer and just enjoying simple cooking techniques. And you've learned, you learn so much in the kind of the higher end and culinary techniques that are so easily transferable to barbecue and smoke and kind of old time grilling that, make things easier, sometimes better, or the consumer, I guess, taste will determine that. Um, but there's something comforting about, in the South, just good, well-prepared barbecue. And I don't want something with tons of options, but something simple and have, you know, ice-cold beer, maybe a bourbon slushy and really good smoked food. Um, he liked the Donald Link, the Donald Link concept, Koshan down there, and uh, on Chop Tools in New Orleans. Yeah, I'm thinking much more simple. Oh yeah, it but Butcher. I, I was bringing up the fact that he opened Butcher right next door. 
That's a simple one. Well, everything he touches turns to gold. In fact, I just saw a top... 25 restaurants in New Orleans, some, I don't know who did it, who was on Facebook or one of these social medias, and he had four restaurants or three restaurants in the top 25. And Herb, it's just, Saint, Herb Saint is one of my okay, favorite four. restaurants. four. Herb Saint was one of two. Like, it's God, just, it's just it's, it's insane. It's, uh, <laughs> he has the Midas. I think he might have had five. Pesh was on it, too. Koshan. Oh, wow. I mean, it was all of them. You know, I mean, everything he touches. Um, but Butcher's a, a, a great place. I love Butcher. It's fantastic. Um, Fantastic. Well, back, back to like when you were talking about just kind of cooking, like when when we've done barbecue, like I think you and I, the, the 2000 like New Year's was like the first time we went and bought a pig. I remember that. And, and like we. I came I came back from Charleston and it was like, oh, Jason, you're cooking. You're cooking. The and, end of the world is tonight and you're cooking a whole right. pig. And it's and it like I think. uh Hoffman, maybe Scott Hoffman sent us somewhere. We went in a car to pick up this pig, yes, and, and then we we took it, and you know that's basically the first like wine and swine kind of thing like that where it was like, wait, we're gonna cook a whole pig for, and that's that was that's a great memory. But then, uh, do you remember the sprinklers came on in the middle of the night? I, I do, I, but I also <laughs> it, it remember that when we we were at Hogs for the Cause. Right. Basically, the same thing happened, but it was Brian and Judd and you and I, like cu- cutting on the top of a cooler, like, and then got to the bean course and it was like nobody made any beans and we just turned in raw beans. But like all of that is just around a campfire, kind of like you know. I just fun. think it takes it back to the most simple, rustic, but done correctly. You know, in fact, I'm I, when I leave here, I'm putting a brisket on tonight, and you know, brisket. We laugh. Brisket, I, I guess, is what I consider kind of a a normal food that everyone from every means has a brisket reference. But from a culinary standpoint, brisket might be one of the most difficult cuts of meat to cook, the most challenging cuts of meat, and probably the one thing in my career that I've I've had more pain and anguish with. I've probably thrown away more brisket. I've cooked, and you see people brisket all the time but it's a it's that that chase for perfection that just intense look for it and brisket will always be a challenge to me and 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 so barbecue to me is just it's so fun to find simple things and try to perfect them and i i envision something with you know four entrees and four sides and ice cold beer and goblets like they do at herbie k's and um herbie k's butcher paper meat Couple sides and and, tray. and that sounds totally awesome right now. Yeah, and I think you know downtown it, it's it's a product that you know what, what we found at Parish Taco. What I I think what I am so happy about Parish Taco is if you walk in at lunch, you will see some people that look like they might have been playing in a band until four o'clock in the morning or listening to a band until four o'clock in the morning and hadn't gone to sleep. You will see some oil and gas guys sitting at a table. You'll see some of um, our politicians, our government people working there. You'll see people from the restaurant industry. Uh, you'll see people. I mean, it's just all walks of life come together for tacos. And I think barbecue's the same thing. It's just a, it, it goes across all levels and, and all income levels. All People like it. And it'd be fun. I think for downtown, you need those kind of universal places that brings all walks of life. Uh, and I, I think I was going with the Kallenberg thing with the October. He does the film prize in October. 
I, I would love to see wine and swine. I'd love to see a huge pig festival downtown. Um, and you I, know, I, I won't speak on that. I know, but I, but it, but that's a springtime thing. Like, there's nothing better than a springtime pig roast, yeah. an April pig roast, and um, it, it'd be a lot of fun doing it exactly. You where. can do it at New Year's as well. You never know. It might the ninety fifth wine and swine annual that's wine right. and swine might uh, might show up somewhere downtown. Well, cool. Well, all right. I'll I'll keep this simple. I don't know if Thomas has anything else, but what. If you could send a text message that everyone in, in Shreveport Bossier receives, what would that text message say? Support local. Support local. Anything? I got I got nothing. All right. Well, um, thank you, Jason Brady. We appreciate your time. We appreciate you coming in and we appreciate uh we appreciate the tacos. Well it was awesome and uh thank you to the four listeners. I hope y'all enjoy this. Uh, it was fun.